So this week we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for our uh, time of teaching this morning. Each time we get together as believers, we open up God's word and we hear the Lord speak to us there. And this is a pattern actually that the early church practice from the earliest days when the people of God, the followers of Jesus gathered, their leaders would stand up and, and teach. You see this going back. You can look at places like Acts chapter two. You see whenever they're, they're there, they're devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and the pastors. And that's what we do when we, we gather. So this is a, a tradition, if you want to call it that, a practice going back thousands of years where we would give ourselves to the teaching of the word of God. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13, on into chapter 5, uh, verse 11. We've been in 1 Thessalonians for some, uh, maybe nine or ten weeks or so now. We've got just a couple more weeks before we round out our study in this uh, wonderful little book. And this morning is part two um, of, uh, I guess you'd call like an extended sermon on this particular section. And this section... Um, Paul is taking up uh, teaching his thoughts on the end times. And um, as we begin thinking about the end times, before I have BJ come forwards, I'm going to ask Felicia to play a little video. Maybe you've seen this online. It's an interesting video, and it's going to play a role in what I'm going to say uh, here in just a little bit. So go ahead and cue up the video, Felicia. Thank you. Hello, I'm James Blake, and tonight I bring you a story I could have never imagined presenting. Just weeks ago, the world experienced a phenomenon that changed everything in one split second. In an instant, people vanished into thin air in what we are now calling the Great Disappearance. Reports of this disappearance are worldwide, with people missing from Russia to Africa, Europe to the United States. There is no place on this earth that has not been touched by this mysterious abduction. If you're watching this broadcast, like me, you are left reeling in the confusion of the sudden loss of family, friends, and coworkers. As we grieve and mourn our losses, governments scramble to maintain peace, and cities dig out from the carnage of catastrophic disasters as a result of those missing. No one still living has not been affected by the strange occurrence. So how can this be explained? How can more than 30 million people vanish into thin air in just one day, in one moment? The theories abound. Conspiracies run rampant. Some people believe terrorism plays a role. Others suspect technology is to blame, such as AI or molecular warfare. Could it be a global cult has prepared for this day and now have gone underground? Or could this be the event we've been warned about for 2,000 years? The rapture. It might be the only explanation for the missing. And it's a sobering thought because if we have truly been left behind, we know, according to the Bible, what comes next. I've never read the Bible, but I have been doing so since that remarkable day. And this is what I discovered. The worst day on earth was the best day for millions. As we mourn, they now rejoice. As we cry, God is wiping away their tears. What seems a tragedy to us 
was a glorious homecoming for them. While we were distracted with the things of this world, they were ready. And while we've lost everything, they've gained eternity. In my research, I found a scripture from the Bible that I believe explains it all. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, they shall always be with the Lord. This is James Blake. This is my final report. May God have mercy on us all. So um, that's from the ministry of Dr. David Jeremiah. And you can notice from the verses there at the end that that comes right out of our passage um, that we're looking at here in just a moment. It is a very common view of this passage. It's not my view of this passage, and I know many of you uh, may share this view or may, may not, and that's okay. But I started that uh, started the sermon kind of with that introductory piece there just to kind of get us thinking about all of these things. And so without further ado, I'm going to have uh, BJ come forwards and he's just going to read to the end of chapter four. And I'm going to say some things about chapter five as we go through the message. So thank you, BJ. Thank you, brother. Good morning, everybody. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Amen. I will say that 
video, and there's a number of them. If you go to Dr. David Jeremiah's website, there's a number of them like that, and they're very well done, actually. They're very moving and very touching. And so I am grateful to him and his ministry for putting uh, those videos together that I think are prompting many people to think about all of these things. And one of the reasons why it's so important to prompt people and to get people thinking about these things is because as Americans, we have been so very fortunate for a long time to live in peace and security. Unlike many nations, we've not had to deal with wars on our own land for a very long time. Occasionally something will happen here that makes us feel vulnerable. 9-11 is one not too distant uh, example of that. Though there are problems, of course, for the most part, our nation has dwelt in peace and security for a long, long time. And that same feeling of peace and security would have been the feeling for most people in the Roman Empire at the time, the time this was written. And so before I go any further, I want to I pause and, and pray and just ask the Lord to, to really stir in us as we think about all of these things and to give me grace as I preach. So let's bow our heads one more time and pray. Lord, as we think about these things, I pray, God, that you would help us to see and to hear what you desire of us, that you would stir even now by your spirit in our hearts. Give me grace to say what is right and true and good. I pray that though this be one of those passages and those places where Christians see things a bit differently, we all share the same hope that one day Jesus will return and he will come and will rescue his people and we will be with the Lord forever and ever. That is our ultimate hope and all Christians agree on that point. So let that shine through as we read the word today and I pray you really would move in each heart. But God, let us, as we think about these things, feel, even if it's just a twinge, a twinge of discomfort, a twinge of, of um, uneasiness as we think about that coming day. And that we would look inside and ask ourselves, am I right with God? Do I have peace with God? Will this day, this coming day, be a day of rejoicing for me? Or will it be a day of sorrow? Oh, God, come, stir now, Holy Spirit, in that way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I pray that because I know, and I pause right there, because I know how tricky it is. We do live in a place where there's a great deal of peace and security. And even now, we feel relatively safe and at home here, though in many places, Christians who gather don't experience that and don't feel that. Well, this feeling of peace and security also would have been shared, what we feel right now, generally speaking. Again, there's moments where we don't feel that, and we have, we have people around our building right now doing security and whatnot because we recognize you know, that, uh, that there's, we live in a broken world and that there are people out there that uh, may want to do harm and all of those things. So we recognize that. But the people dwelling in uh, the city of Thessalonica in the Roman Empire at that time would have had that same sort of posture. They would have said, generally speaking, we feel safe. We know there's wars out there and things going on, but we feel safe. Maybe you've heard of the Pax Romana. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It was probably something that in school you learned 
Maybe some of you are learning it now. It was a Latin term that means Roman peace. And it was a period of time that lasted about 200 years from just before the birth of Jesus until about A.D. 180. That's what most people consider to be roughly the time of Roman peace, where the Roman Empire really dwelt, generally speaking, in peace and security as a whole. The Pax Romana would have been an idea that the Thessalonians, this group of people that this letter is being sent to, that they would have been very, very familiar with. Felicia, if you could pull up that uh, map for me. You see, uh, Thessalonica was, there it is right there, it was a major city in the Roman Empire, and it, li- it lay along a, um, a road called the Via Ignatia. Maybe you've heard of this before, the Via Ignatia. It's a, uh, a major road in this part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had a number of roads uh, like this that helped with, you know, connect the empire and one to defend it, but also for goods and things to be uh, moved along and for people to travel and visit others and for, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Commerce, thank you, commerce to happen and all of that. It was a a very significant road. But um, in that time and place, again, Thessalonica lay just off this, this road and there was a time when it wasn't always uh, secure. Before the arrival of, of the empire, before, before the, the Roman Empire would have been called the Roman Republic, and it would have been more divided, and there would have been more wars and more disunity. But before the arrival of the empire and the Pax Romana there, just before the birth of Jesus, it was a dangerous road. And at one point, the barbarians took over the road right around uh, the region there where Thessalonica, uh, where it is, And the Thessalonians had to defend themselves and flee behind the walls of the city because of this threat. And Cicero, who was a great uh, orator, was once exiled in Thessalonica uh, for a season. And he mentions just how terrible the city's security was at the time. And uh, he complains a good bit uh, about it in some of his writing. And this would have probably been about 100 years or so before the arrival of Paul. Okay, So I'm giving you some backdrop here. In that hundred years, a lot had changed. The Pax Romana was in full effect, and the people felt safe and secure. So in Thessalonica, there would have been a season where they felt, you know, at risk, and there would have been wars and and danger, and they would have had to protect themselves and so on. And then came Rome, the, the empire, and they established this sense of peace. They would have felt safe and secure. The word of the day was peace and security. You can find mention of those two words actually in a great deal of ancient literature. If you were to get your hands on some of the writings from that time and place, you would find that. While there was some truth to the concept, very much like here in, in, in our land where we generally speaking have peace and security, it was also at that time a piece of propaganda that was repeated all of the time everywhere in the empire. Peace and security, Pax Romana, Pax Romana. You know, Roman Empire is establishing peace. Establishing peace. And then arrives the Apostle Paul into Thessalonica. We know from Acts 17 that this message had stirred the city up into quite an uproar. What was it that Paul was saying? What was it he was saying? One of the things that Paul was telling people, which he actually mentions in this section of the letter, 
is that in a time of peace and security, political tranquility and peace and prosperity, destruction will come on you suddenly. This was a part of his message. Destruction will come. There's a coming day when God will return and will judge the good and the wicked. No, 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 Paul. What are you doing? You're raining on our parade. We have peace here. We're safe here. Look at the walls. Look at the guards. We've got money. We're safe. What are you talking about, Paul? But Paul passionately told them about the coming day of the Lord. And it was probably at that point when his opponents had had about enough and decided to run him out of town so that he could not complete his teaching on the coming day of the Lord, the great day of destruction. Which is one of the main reasons Paul takes up his pen here and writes this letter. Writes this letter. So again, very quick backdrop. Paul is passing through on a missionary journey telling people about Jesus. And he shows up at Thessalonica. Right, He'd been going to many of the major cities. And he shows up and he begins telling them about Jesus. And one of the parts of that message was that Jesus was going to come back and, and return and judge the, the good and the wicked. And as he's telling this message, he would, as his, was his custom, he would go into the synagogues um, and he would preach this message to, to the Jewish people. And, to the, and many of them were not Jews, but they were maybe um, practicing Jews. But he would go into the synagogues and share this message. And after a while, um, you know, the Jews oftentimes would run him out of town. And that happened town after town after town. And so that happened in Thessalonica. And you can read about it in Acts 17 if you're interested. But he leaves and he goes down to Athens. And while he's in Athens, he's feeling a big burden for, uh, for the people back in Thessalonica whom he was sharing with. So he sends back Timothy. Timothy goes back, gets a report of what's going on in rendezvous with Paul sometime later in Corinth. And he tells them of what's going on. And Paul writes a letter. Okay, And so that's what we're reading here. This letter was written almost 2,000 years ago. Is that not amazing that we have this before us today? But in that letter, one of the concerns that is recurring is, is the return of, of Jesus. You can see the frequent mention of the return of Jesus in this letter and how important this teaching was and how eager Paul was to talk about it to the people. No doubt they had concerns. They had questions. And that's one of the reasons why Paul is, is writing. So Felicia, you can pull up that next image of the uh, references to the second coming there. And yes, there we go. You can see here from this, all the various mention, uh, times Paul mentions the second coming of Christ in this letter. Look at all that in just a few few chapters again presumably because he was ousted before he could finish his teaching on this aspect of the faith take a look at that chart you can see over and over again in every single chapter of the letter it's mentioned at least once and this morning paul is going to give us a little more detail about the coming of jesus about this day that he was warning the people in thessalonica about and I would say that there are a lot of parallels uh, in, to our time and our place here in America. And that's part of the reason why I felt like this book would be a good one for us to, to go through. So many today are sleeping. So many are saying peace and security. So many never, never think that something like this, some very tragic, destructive, big thing could happen here. 
and many of us are asleep. The security that we have enjoyed for so long has lulled us to sleep. People who warn of a coming day of judgment seem tone deaf to others. So out of touch. What in the world are you talking about? We think about the folks that are, you know, walking down Broadway or Main Street or somewhere in New York City with the big sign, right? The repent and believe, judgment is coming. That's the sort of thing we think about when, when this topic comes up. We think these people are so out of touch. But are they really? But I think that is exactly how Paul would have been viewed by many in Thessalonica. Who is this crazy person? Talking about some day of destruction coming. What? Look, what's he talking about? Look around. Everything's fine. Peace and security. But not all. All did not reject Paul's message. Of course, some received the news that he brought and were waiting eagerly upon the coming day. And Paul commends them in this letter. But they had more questions. Questions that many of you probably have. What is this day going to be like? When will it happen? And so on. These are very natural questions. These are questions that the disciples asked Jesus. And Jesus had some things to say about them. So that's what we're going to look at today for a few moments together. Now last week I told you that this week we would look at the famous verse 17, the so-called rapture passage. One of the reasons that I waited until today to discuss that passage is because the section in chapter 5, which we'll look at as we get a little further on in the message here, actually helps us to understand what is going on in verse 17. So I'd like to do that first. And I'm going to spend the bulk of our time this morning thinking about, about this verse and these ideas for just a moment. And please forgive me if I if you feel lost, this is a tough topic, okay? And, and there's a lot of pieces to this. I'm not going to get into all of them. I'm going to probably use a word here or there that might, you might be like, what's that mean? What's that about? Please don't hesitate to just ask me, okay? To just say, Pastor, what's that all about? What's going on? Don't allow yourself to just be, to be lost, okay? But to some degree, when you're touching on these things, there's an element of difficulty. And so track with me as best you can. And I pray that the, the big ideas will come through as we, as we go through the passage. All right, so there are various sketches of the events that happen uh, here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Various sketches of what happens, but they pretty much all fall into two big camps, two big camps in terms of how they see these events uh, playing out. The first camp sees the moments here in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5 as something that happens in two stages. Two stages. First, Christ will return in the clouds to rapture all true believers. This return is a secret return for the church and will happen imminently like a thief in the night so that believers will suddenly vanish without any warning and those left behind will not know what happened to them. This is what was depicted in that video that we just watched a few moments ago. And this will mark the beginning of a, of a time of great tribulation during which the, uh, which the Lord deals primarily with Israel during that time period. Okay? This viewpoint argues that the church must be removed from the earth so that God can deal with Israel in some very dramatic and uh, developed ways to prepare them for what is called the millennial kingdom. 
that period of that we read about in, in Revelation 20 a few moments ago. Okay, so that's one perspective, or that's the first part of that one perspective. Then after the tribulation, Christ will uh, return visibly to earth to establish that millennial kingdom where he will reign upon the earth in the flesh for a thousand years as they believe is prophesied in Revelation 20, again, which was read earlier in the service. The second stage of Christ's return is what they would call the second coming. That's the second coming. After the great tribulation, when he sets up the millennial kingdom upon the earth, even though he already returned once for his saints in secret. Both of those stages of Christ's return are often grouped together under the heading of the second coming for that first camp. And that's the first camp, which separate. They separate what they call the secret rapture, which is described there in verse 17 of chapter 4, from the visible second coming to establish the millennial kingdom, which is in chapter 5. Okay, they separate those as two distinct events. The second camp sees these two things, the rapture, which they would call just the resurrection of the saints. They wouldn't refer to it as the rapture. They would refer to it as the resurrection of the saints. And the second coming as happening in a single event. It's one single moment, one event. That's the second camp. Chapters 4, chapters 5, same event. Okay? So the big question here is this. Is what Paul is describing here one event or two? Is it one event or two? That's the big question. And I think there's ample evidence right here that we can say, we can make a solid argument, at least this is my perspective, and I... I recognize folks who see it a different way as brothers and sisters in the Lord, so don't feel like your toes are being stepped on or I'm saying you're not a Christian or a terrible person or something like that. It's not at all what I'm saying. It's just an honest disagreement about how to interpret this passage. But I think there's ample evidence right here that we can be sure that this is a single event and not two separate things being described. A single event. A few pieces of evidence that seem to indicate this I'd like to look at uh, now. First, let's quickly look at some pieces of evidence from last week's section in verse 16 there. You look at verse 16. If you've got your Bible, feel free to flip there. Or I think it's in the, the bulletin too. Sir, could you uh, please keep it down over there? Thank you. Whatever. <laughs> That's right. I got raptured. He said, uh, uh, For the Lord himself, this is verse 16. (laughs) For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, our brothers and sisters who say that this is the rapture moment will argue that this is a secret event, that this is something that happens Suddenly, with no apparent no appearance of Jesus, um, people just uh, disappear. On the surface, at least, when you read this, it appears that this is a loud public event. And that there are three distinct sounds here. The cry of command from the Lord, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet blast. These are, there's no reason to think, anyway, at first brush that these would be Uh, silent. The Lord's cry of command, like that of Jesus' shout at the tomb of Lazarus, 
uh, is most likely Jesus commanding the dead in Christ to rise. You think of that moment there at the tomb of Lazarus when the Lord is, is there. Many of you remember that story. Um, it's it's a, um, a funeral service. Many are weeping and wailing at this, this, uh, this uh, young man, relatively young man, Lazarus, who's passed away. And, and Jesus shows up and they're crying and rightly upset. You know, they've lost a loved one. And they say, Lord, if you were here, then he wouldn't have died. And you know the rest of the story. Many of you will know that story. I've shared that at many a funeral. And uh, Jesus goes up to the tomb and he tells everybody, your brother's going to rise. It's going to be okay. And then he rolled the stone away and the whole story. And he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets up and is alive again. He's been raised from the dead. Many believe that is what is happening here at the Lord's cry of command. When he appears in the sky, he gives a cry. And the dead in Christ rise. They rise in response to the command of Jesus. Their bodies now coming forth from their graves and being reunited with their souls in the air with the Lord. So that's the first piece of evidence that I just see right here in in this passage. This doesn't seem to be a secret thing happening. This seems to be a very public, loud moment. The second piece of evidence that I see that indicates or seems to indicate anyways that this is a singular event instead of two separate things we can find in verse 17. I'll read that for you now. We've already read it a couple times. We'll read it again. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The clouds here are most, uh, most likely not rain clouds. That would be one way of interpreting it, but uh, the other pieces, when you take it all together, consider the, the cry of command and the trumpet blast, most likely these are the clouds that are associated with the presence of God in the Bible. The trumpet blast also is signaling to us that this is an appearance of the Lord. The Lord is is here. He's making himself known. This is not a silent, secret event. God is here. Think of the trumpet blast in the cloud on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Go back and read those encounters that Moses had with the Lord going up on the mountain when the people would meet the Lord. There was clouds and smoke and trumpet blasts because God was announcing his presence. This seems to be a visible appearance of God. On clouds of glory. There's nothing secret about this moment, at least the way it reads. That's the second piece of evidence. The third piece of evidence is that in chapter 5, Paul takes up the issue of the day of the Lord. Okay? Immediately after this section on the resurrection of the believers, Paul jumps into talking about the great day of the Lord. Right? From the way it reads, it appears that Paul is answering different questions related to the same event. That's why there's a maybe a pause there at the end of what we, we call chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. is because he's taking up different questions, but related to the same singular event. In other words, the second coming seems to be also the long-awaited day of the Lord. Whatever this day is, it is a day that will come suddenly. There will be destruction. God will pour out his wrath. 
But for the people of God, the church, there will also be salvation in that same moment. Some are being judged and and sentenced and others are being saved in the same moment. These events appear, again with the way it reads, to be happening at the same time. Some wonder how will God pour out his wrath upon unbelievers and the church um, or pour out his wrath upon unbelievers and the church be right there with him as he does it and not be destroyed. This is one of the reasons why some folks separate these events and they think they say the church has to be removed from the situation because God's going to do some really destructive stuff and they can't be there for it. But I think the Bible gives us many examples of this actually happening, where God is judging people and his people are right there. Think of the great flood of Noah. Right? God had a way of saving his people in this the most destructive event in human history, the great flood. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. God had a way of rescuing his own. Think of the plagues of Egypt. People of God are right there in Goshen, right there. Wow, God is judging Egypt and pouring out his wrath on these people for their hardness of heart. In each case, believers were there while God was executing judgment. I don't think we need to assume um, some removal of the church uh, for the sake of, of, of judgment or to spare them from the judgment. Either way, whether you see this as one event in two stages or as one event, here's the big point for us, for those of us who've trusted Christ. It's still good news, right? We're saved from the coming judgment, not because of anything we've done or who we are, but because of Jesus and his grace. Right? So there's good news, whatever your view on this passage. Maybe some of you haven't taken that step. You want to be naive. And just assume that we all understand these things. I know maybe perhaps some do not. I would invite you to trust the Lord Jesus. Let today be the day of salvation. Come to him. Trust him. Receive him by faith. I'd love to talk with you about that after the service if you're open to that. Well, perhaps you are wondering why Paul is talking about these things in the first place. If you'll remember again, just to... Just to I, I love to... Some people appreciate my my rehashing things other others of you are probably pretty annoyed by it man he said that three four times already you should just move on sorry the mark of a good teacher some of you out there are teachers are making sure your people are following along right and repeating things over and over and over again so that's what i'm trying to do trying to be faithful to make sure i'm not leaving you in the dust back there okay and I'm, I'm keeping everyone up to speed. Some of you are way up to speed and ready for me, quite frankly, to move on. So I, I get we've got people in both of those categories. And I'm doing my best. So praise the Lord. Be patient with me. Um, but anyways, if you remember last week, it appeared that there was some missing information about the return of Christ. And so the believers had questions, right? So uh, Timothy had gone and, and said, how are things going? And they wanted to know a bit more about some of Paul's teaching about the end times because he had been rushed out of town, you know, forced out of town and didn't get um, to finish. And so there's questions. And Paul's taking their, their questions. And last week we talked about this one question. It seemed as though they were struggling with this idea 
that some of their people, some of the people in the church, maybe family or friends or maybe just other believers from the community, had, had died and they were struggling with, are they going to miss out on the return of Jesus somehow, on that great moment when Christ returns and the resurrection of the dead and all that stuff happens? Are they going to miss out? And Paul explains they will not miss out, but they will in fact have a front row seat to it, right? The dead in Christ will rise first and will join everyone else in the air with the Lord. Right, they will have a front row seat. So he, he addressed that concern. Everyone will be with the Lord and go up to meet the Lord on that day. Now, in chapter 5, Paul seems to be addressing concerns re- related uh, to whether or not they were ready for the return of Christ. And when this day will happen and what will happen on that day. More in that sort of category of, of questions. Paul reassures them that everyone that has trusted in Christ that has received him by faith, is destined for salvation and not for wrath or judgment. So in other words, if you believe in Jesus, following Jesus, you're ready. You have all you need, is basically the message of of chapter 5. And he speaks of these things as, a again, a singular moment, as one event in time, not two separate events or comings. Okay, so people are caught up in the air to meet the Lord and, and... And then he goes into the stuff in chapter 5 there. And maybe it's still a little fuzzy as to what happens next. Okay, so dead in Christ are raised. And, you know, we're caught up is the the expression there. Raptured, caught up into into the air and to meet the Lord. Then what? Then what happens? And I think there's good evidence to believe that instead of just continuing on up to heaven with the Lord or staying up in the air for a time... Uh, some folks that believe that these are two separate events will argue that the church remains in the air for a number of years while um, the tribulation happens. Others believe that the church goes all the way to heaven and remains there uh, during the tribulation and so on. Uh, and then, after a time, they return uh, to earth with Jesus. But there's nothing here to suggest that Jesus only comes part of the way down in some kind of a secret fashion, snatches up the church and then goes back to heaven. I don't read that here. I don't read that anywhere in the New Testament, quite frankly. The imagery that is used here by Paul, many scholars agree, is something that was commonplace at the time. Remember we started talking this morning with the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Remember that. Talked about how Rome had established peace in their territories. How do you think they established peace? Probably through a lot of conquest, right? And a lot of wars and taking people into captivity and stuff that's uh, really ugly to talk about. But that peace had come through war, through conquering all kinds of peoples and nations and and through some kind of a political system as well, right? That was how they took this large area. Rome, through that process, had become very used to victory. Victory was something very familiar to the Roman armies. And so they had developed over time an entire routine to these victories. Something that they called a victory march or parade. According to the 5th century historian, Orosius, there were 320 triumphs in the city of Rome leading right up to the 1st century. 300 of soldiers going off Conquering, winning a battle, coming back to Rome, and having a big parade. 300 by the end of the first century. 
And these were well documented. Felicia, if you'll pull up that image there. There's a, one piece of all artwork here um, by, I think this is Emperor Titus, I think it is, um, there. And this, this is one of their gods crowning him as victor. And this is someone from the, uh, I think this is a, maybe one of the senators that Rome had a senate that was a part of their political process um, there. And then you've got soldiers and swords and common people and stuff in the background. But this is a, there's all kinds of um, artwork and whatnot like this. This is actually first century. That's when this is dated to, this, this uh, engraving here. It's called The Triumph of Titus. And R.C. Sproul is a wonderful Bible teacher. If you can get your hands on anything that R.C. Sproul does, I commend, you to, commend it to you. R.C. Sproul describes these marches in beautiful detail in his series on the last days, which you can find online. He and many other pastors and scholars see here in this passage this imagery, this imagery as the backdrop for what Paul is saying here. When the Roman armies would arrive back from a military campaign victorious, they would camp outside of the city of Rome, oftentimes like say a mile or so outside of, of the city. And all the soldiers and all the captives would camp there. And they would send a message inside to the city or to the Senate and announce their arrival, saying we've here, we're here, we've come back from battle, we've won, we've got captives, so on. This gave time for the city planners to set up a big victory arch and to get the city ready for a grand parade and celebration. And R.C. Sproul talks about his talk in his uh, little talk on this about how they would even have perfumes and such that they would spray around the city to cover up the smell of war and captives and all of that stuff. At a prearranged time, a signal would be given and the trumpets would be blasted and the army would march into the city. But before they began their march, the trumpet would signal to the actual citizens, the citizens of Rome, to come out and join the army outside of the city and march in with them and participate in the victory march as it comes back into the city. If this is the backdrop to what Paul is saying here, and many think it is, then the picture we have is this. As Christ comes back on that glorious day, the trumpet will be blown and all of his true people, the true citizens of the kingdom of God, will go up into the clouds to meet him in the clouds. And they will be with him there as he descends. And he will continue to descend with them in a glorious moment of triumph. And they will participate in his victory march as he goes throughout the world and gathers up his people and executes judgment on the nations. We will be a part of the glorious moment of Christ's triumph. And the details there from that point on would be a discussion for another, another time. But what is the basic message of chapter 5? As we think about 4 and 5 together, again, I see them as a single event. And again, many agree that this seems to be the backdrop of this return of Christ, that we will participate somehow as he comes down, we'll join him in the sky, and he'll continue down to the earth, and we'll participate in this glorious parade, this moment of Christ's triumph in some way. And in the details from there, we're not going to get all into, into that. But what's the basic message of chapter 5? We've yet to look at that. Take just a moment as we close here to look at that. 
And let's read it together now. We've got stuff from chapter 4 discussed. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple verses and say a couple words about those verses. Read a couple verses, say a couple words, so we'll get through it uh, fairly quickly. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So what he's saying there is you asked about when the Lord will return. He says, I've already spoken to you about it briefly, but now I'm going to add a little to what I said before. So he's basically saying you've got the, the heart of it. I understand your questions. Here's just a little bit more detail. While people are saying there's peace and security, there's that phrase, right? Pax Romana, peace and security, everything's fine, no worries. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. He says that the great day will come like a thief in the night. It will come suddenly like a woman whose water breaks and she's in labor. No more than she can stop the birth process can the wicked escape from this moment. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You were all children of light, children of the day. And we are not of the night or of the darkness. He says, but you know the Lord, so you don't need to worry. It's going to come suddenly, but you don't need to worry. We don't know when the day will come, but it will not be a surprise to you because you're waiting on him. Over and over, Paul has indicated that these believers were truly waiting upon Jesus and he commended them for it. How then could you be surprised? You're waiting on the return of the Lord. It's okay. You're going to be all right. You're waiting. Verse six. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul's saying this is how you are to live in these last days as we wait upon the Lord. Be alert. Be ready. Don't let the culture of the world lull you to sleep. Live like Jesus calls you to live. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So in that last section, Paul just reassures the believers once again of their salvation and of the salvation of those who have died before them. Every true believer in Jesus will be saved. Whether you're dead at the time he comes, your body's dead at the time he comes, or whether you're living on the earth and and just going about your, your daily business, all believers will be saved. All right, that was a lot. Um... Many of you probably feel, i just wrap up with these words, I feel like that was a lot of material, and I'm, I want to give you a piece of application as we close here, okay? Some of you are like, all right, that was interesting, but I don't know what to do with that now, maybe. Uh, let me give you a little piece of application as we close, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Again, the big point is that trust Jesus. Trust Him, look to Him. He's done... He's done everything for you. He's made you right with God. If you just put your faith in him, trust him. And in that day, it'll be a good day. It'll be a glorious day. A wonderful day of salvation. But many of you probably feel the way I feel about uh, the current times in which we live. You probably look around and wonder, what in, in the world is the world coming to? Maybe you feel that the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome is fading. 
right? The American dream, the American sense of peace and security that we've enjoyed for so long is fading. Maybe that's what you feel. I certainly feel like that many days. And I know some of you are struggling with that feeling. There are many days, again, where I think all of us taste that. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes I want to leave with you as I wrap up here and give you something to think about. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. We went through Ecclesiastes a couple years ago, a couple, three years ago. Here's what it says. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I won't go into the context and whatnot. But he says, don't look back and say, those were the glory days. If only we could go back to the, you know, whatever the 19, whatever it would be for you. Too many of us, myself included, dwell on the evil all around us. We dwell on the immorality and the brokenness and all of the confusion. And we think if we could just go back to the good old days. The result is that we mope and complain and gripe. And our lives are characterized by worry and fear and frustration. Is that true of you? It's true of me a lot of days. That should not be the posture of a true Christian, right? Should not be how we're walking through our days. This passage here clearly shows us our best days are coming. Our best days are ahead of us. Jesus is coming back. That's right. Paul told the believers here in this little church and all of us here in our little church, don't grieve as those who have no hope. But he tells us today, don't live as those who have no hope. We have a hope. Our best days are coming. Live as those whose best days are in the future because it's true. Even if the world continues to get worse, even if things deteriorate more and more and more, Jesus is our peace and our security. Right? Not our government. Not our whatever. Fill in the blank. Jesus is ultimately is our peace and security. And even if they get better and things around us improve and peace begins to become commonplace again, great. Even then, Jesus is still our ultimate peace and security. If you do not have this peace and security, please come up. Speak to me after the service. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you about how you can have that peace and that security even in the great day of the Lord when he returns. Amen. Amen. That was a lot. All right, let's pray as we transition to the table now. Oh, Lord, uh, we've got a lot to think about. But one main thing, you're coming back. And what will that day be like for us? I pray it would be a good day for each person here, each person hearing my voice. Oh, Lord, make it, make it so. Give faith. Give all that we need, Lord, this morning, that we might truly come and embrace you. Oh, Lord, let each person now, whatever is going on in their heart, somehow meet you. Holy Spirit, come, please. And as we prepare now for the table, I ask God that, uh, that we really would feed upon you and be strengthened as we come to the table. That's what this is about. As we come together and partake of communion, we're reminded of our oneness with you, but also our oneness with one another. And we're reminded of how you give your flesh and your blood 
as food and drink for the life of the world. That it is in you, through faith in you, that we have true life and peace and security and all of those blessings. Remind us of these things now. Teach us these things now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.